Welcome to the Qalam Institute Podcast. You're listening to Lives of the Prophets by Mufti Hussein Kamani. Imagine spending two weeks, every day, morning and evening, with the Prophet That's the vision behind Sirah Intensive. Every year, over a hundred people from all over the world come together to spend two weeks immersed in learning about the life and character of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad wasallam. Sign up and get more information at sirahintensive.com. That's S-E-E-R-A-H intensive.com. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladhi nastafa. Khususan ala sayyidi rusuli wa khatam al-anbiya wa ala alihi al-askiya wa ashabihi al-atqiya amma ba'd. Last week in our class we were talking about the life of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. And we mentioned that how Ibrahim alayhi salam after traveling through Egypt um, the incident occurred with his wife Sarah, and his wife was then gifted a, a servant by the name of Hajar. And Ibrahim salam returned back now to what is known as the Ardul Muqaddas or Palestine, Palestine. While Ibrahim salam lives there with his wife Sarah, after some years, Sarah comes to a realization that it's very possible that she may not bear children. Ibrahim salam is constantly making dua, she is constantly making dua. But this thought comes to her that if I can't bear children, then we will not have any children at all. And Ibrahim salam, the Prophet of Allah, who's made such great sacrifice, she knew of his desire to have children too. So she then offered the servant that she had, Hajar, to Ibrahim salam. Ibrahim salam brings Hajar into his marriage, and then from this marriage, they are blessed with a child, Ismail salam. Now, this is a one great lesson, first of all. First and foremost, a huge lesson. The lesson is that Ibrahim salam was not blessed with a child for many years. And there are many people in our community too, who wish to have a child. There are those who wish to have a boy, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses them with a girl. There are those who want a girl, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses them with a boy. There are those who are making dua to Allah, Ya Allah bless me with one child, but Allah blesses them with two children. And sometimes you ask for children and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests you and you are not given a child at the time when you make your dua. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses each of these scenarios by clearly stating that each of these, whether you're given one child, two children, no children, this is all ultimately in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. يَهَبُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ إِنَاثًا وَيَهَبُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ الذُّكُورُ أو يُزَوِّجُهُمْ ذُكْرَانًا وَإِنَاثًا وَيَجْعَلُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ عَقِيمًا and out of the many different tests Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts people through, the different, there are hundreds of tests people face in, their li- face in their life. One of the greatest tests is to also be tested with your children. Now sometimes a person thinks to themselves that I would really love to have a child. But then you think to yourself that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has withheld children from you. Even in that there is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's very possible that the child that you would have would be disobedient. It's very possible that you would not uh, succeed in, in parenting that child and that child would be a burden against you on the Day of Judgment. It's very possible that the child would be born with certain challenges that would be very difficult for you to take care of. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala out of His infinite wisdom, He, with, he withholds a mercy of His. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses it when suitable. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not bless with a, a, the bounty of a child in the world, then our job is to continue to remain patient and continue to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, there are other avenues out there as well. For example, there are some medical treatments that people can use to, um, 
to, uh, to, to, to explore the, uh, the, the possibilities of having children. And beyond that, one of the greatest blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also the command of adoption. You know, I, I tell my friends that had it not been for some couples not having the ability to have children naturally from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's very possible that the sunnah of adoption would have completely left the face of the earth. There would be no Muslim left to adopt. And those children, those orphans would remain. And it's not that um, because you cannot have children, it's mandated upon you to go and adopt. Or the sunnah is only for those people who, who are struggling to have children. But unfortunately, culturally, it's become a taboo. Which person, which community encourages adoption? When's the last time you heard a khatib climb the pulpit on a Friday and give a powerful lecture on encouraging adopting children across the world who are orphans? Do those children not have the right to grow up in a household where they have the direct attention of two parents? who will take care of them, buy for them, educate them, feed them, put a roof over their head. This is a huge responsibility. And this is a huge, there's a huge virtue in this. And people, they think to themselves that, no, I can't do that. You know, what am I going to do with an orphan inside my home? I'll have to take care of them, provide for them, feed them. And it's as if we forgot about the one who gave us the wealth in the first place. It was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a discussion that is a no-brainer. We've already decided that it'll never happen in our lifetime. That's why when someone talks about this, we assume that the virtue of adoption is for the person next to me. Maybe it's for someone else. There was one lady that I met in England. The sheikh who took me to visit her, he said that, Sheikh, I'm going to take you to visit a lady in our community. She is from the people of Jannah. I said, wow, that's a huge statement, saying that a lady is from the people of Jannah. Nobody really knows whether someone's from Jannah or not. But since he said it, and I'm sure the imam knows her very well, so I said, let's go meet her. So I went to visit this lady. She was an old lady in London. We sat with her, we talked with her, a very kind, nice lady. When we came to the house, she prepared a little meal for us. We had some food together. And then I asked the sheikh, I said, sheikh, why are you so, you know, uh, so big on this sister? What, what did she do? So he said, well, what the sister does, her and her husband couldn't have their own children. So they adopt children, they get them married, and they adopt another child. They get the child married, adopt another child. And they, like this, have adopted many children and got them all married. And even at this age right now, the lady, when I saw her, was 70 years old. How old was she? 70 years old. And she recently adopted another child, and this time her husband and her said that they would adopt a child with disabilities. So they went and they found a child with disabilities, and they brought that child into their home. And the lady said to me, Sheikh, make dua that Allah doesn't take my life until I fulfill this responsibility too. And I said to myself, oh, that's why. That's why you're saying that this lady is from the women of paradise because the Prophet ﷺ said, مَن تَمَسَّكَ بِسُنَّتِي عِنْدَ فَسَادِ أُمَّتِي فَلَهُ أَجْرُ مِئَةِ الشَّهِيدِ The one who holds firmly to my sunnah. At the time where my ummah, my people will be in corruption. And some scholars when they say fasadi ummati, they say that fasadi sunnati. That at a time where my sunnah will be forgotten, or my sunnah will be corrupted. For that person will be the reward of 100 martyrs. So here, we see Ibrahim salam in his lesson as well. He continues to make dua to Allah, continues to make dua to Allah. Many times we make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for something, and we expect that thing to be delivered in our house, like um, Amazon Prime, next day. We want that thing right outside our house. We're waiting for Amazon to create drones, so that way it comes and drops it off for our house within the hour. And then they have Amazon now, within three hours, delivery to your home. However, that's not the matter with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives whenever He deems it to be suitable, when it's best for you. Our job is to say, Ya Allah, give it to me if it is good for me, and whenever it is good for me. 
And the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept your prayers as long as you are not hasty. Hasty meaning, oh Allah, I want it now. Oh Allah, I want it now. Oh Allah, I want it now. And this is another lesson that we learned from Ibrahim's life, السلام, that he makes a dua, you know, from the moment he's married, whenever, whatever the age he got married at, and continues to make this dua, continues to make this dua. And at what age is the dua accepted? When he's 83 years old. 83 years old, probably now in a wheelchair, someone pushing him, lifting him, picking him, maneuvering him. Not really, Ibrahim was a healthy person even at that age. But so that, just so that you can create an image in your mind. Someone who's getting skinny and frail in our community, it's very hard to even see a person live to 83. And Ibrahim at the age of 83, he picks up his little munchkin and this is the first time he has a baby in his hand. And this is his son Ismail So the narration state, so there are two opinions on the issue, I'll share both opinions with you. The first opinion on the issue is that when Hajar was blessed with a child, the first wife Sarah began to feel uncomfortable, seeing the child, a child that she always wanted for herself, but unfortunately she wasn't able to give her husband a child because of whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had tested her with. When she saw the child, there was like this envious nature that was created inside her, and she began to interact with Hajar in a more harsh way. Hajar then decided to leave that area and she moved out, and when she moved out, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent angels to her saying to her that you must go back. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless from your children a prophet. Great prophets will come and a prophet will come from your children. So Hajar then returns back and Ibrahim salam then takes her and removes her from that environment, from that city and takes her far away to a place known today as Makkah Mukarramah. And he leaves her there. That's the first opinion. The second opinion of the scholars, they say, the reason why Ibrahim salam dropped his wife Hajar off to Makkah away from where he was living was, it was a command of Allah and that's it. There was no um, ill feelings between Sarah and Hajar, it was just a command of Allah. So he followed that command. Both opinions are there. Some scholars say that it was a motive, the motive was the jealousy between Hajar and Sarah. And the others they say it was a pure command of Allah. Ibrahim salam took Hajar and his wife Ismail and brought them to a, a desert and a hot desert. Not a single soul lived there, not a single animal lived there. And the reason why nobody could live there was because there was no source of water there. And if there is a desert where there's no water, you can't live there, you'll die. So the, now Ibrahim brings his wife Hajar and his son Ismail there. And from there onwards continues the story of Ibrahim and Ismail. Now what I'm going to do is instead of focusing now on Ibrahim we're going to switch over today and talk about his son Ismail because now he is born and his story starts. What is the meaning of the name Ismail? So in Abrani, the word il means Allah. You know how we say Allah in Arabic? In Abrani, il means Allah. And Isma is the Arabic word which means to hear, to listen. And the reason why he's called Ismail, some scholars say it's because he would make a lot of dua to Allah, therefore Ismail, oh Allah, listen to me. And the other is that Ibrahim made dua to Allah for 80 years and Hajar made dua to Allah. And after all the dua Allah accepted, therefore they remind him Ismail that you continue to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because that's what we did for you to be born in the first place. So this is what the name Ismail actually means. How many times is Ismail mentioned in the Quran? He is mentioned multiple times. He is mentioned multiple times in Surah Al-Baqarah, in Surah Al-Imran, Surah Nisa, Surah An'am, Surah Ibrahim, Surah Maryam, Surah Anbiya, Surah Safat, and Surah Sa'd. 
Some of these um, places Allah mentions him by name directly, and sometimes his mention is implied even though he isn't mentioned uh, directly. And I'll give an example of that up ahead. Now the scholars differ in opinion. At what age did Ibrahim salam take Ismail and Hajar to Mecca? How old was Ismail salam when Ibrahim salam dropped him and his mother off to Mecca? So there are two opinions on this issue. I'll first share the less common opinion and then I'll share the more common opinion. The less common opinion, which seems to be the opinion supported by many of the people of the scriptures who are not Muslims and also some Muslim scholars who have, have supported this opinion, it's not the common or orthodox opinion on this issue, but they say that Ibrahim dropped off Ismail to Mecca when he was 14 years old. They say when he was how old? 14 years old, that's when he dropped off Ismail and Hajar to Mecca. They, and those, the Muslim scholars, they support it through the ayah of the Quran, the ayah of Surah Safat, فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ مَعَهُ السَّعْيَةِ and when he reached he reached with him a saya is like more of a, a, more, a more mature age. So in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that when he reached ma'ahu with him, with him meaning with Ibrahim alayhi salam, saya the age of maturity. So what they're implying from this verse is that the Quran says that Ismail alayhi salam grew up with his father until he reached the age of maturity. You guys understand that? فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ مَعَهُ أَسَعِيَ And when he, meaning when Ismail salam reached with his father Asaya. And Asaya again, like I said, is the age of maturity. So they're saying that the Quran says that Ismail lived with his father Ibrahim until he reached that age. Therefore, when he left him, when he left him in Mecca, it was after that age, after the age of 14. Now we know that this is not the common opinion, the famous hadith of Bukhari in this regard is here. The Prophet ﷺ tells us that this happened right when he was an infant, right when he was very, very young. And I'll share that hadith with you in detail um, in a few moments. The response to the first uh, group of people and, the, and their quotation of the ayah is that Ibrahim ﷺ, when he dropped his son off in Hajar to Makkah Mukarramah, it's not like he went missing for 14 years. During that period, Ismail Ibrahim would regularly, he would come and visit them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given him um, access to the buraq, the same buraq that the Prophet wasallam he used to travel from, from Makkah Mukarramah to um, Baytul Maqdis and from there to the heavens. Ibrahim used this very same buraq to visit Ismail and his wife Hajar. Therefore, he was with them um, through that period as well. So the meaning of this verse still remains in its place. After Ismail was born, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Ibrahim to perform circumcision on his son. To perform what we call in Arabic the khatna or the khitan, to, um, to circumcise Ismail So Ibrahim circumcised himself prior to circumcising his son Ismail Now. How old was Ibrahim when he circumcised himself prior to circumcising his son? I'll come back to that in a moment, just wait, wait there, okay? Um, this depends on how old Ismail was when he was circumcised. There are two opinions on the issue. The less common opinion is that Ismail was 13 years old. After he was brought to Makkah Mukarramah, he was 13 years old. Ibrahim circumcised himself and then circumcised his son. According to this opinion, Ibrahim is now over 90 years old. Over 90 years old. 
probably 96, 95, somewhere around there. That's how old he is when this happens. The more common opinion is that this was occurred, this occurred after Ismail was born, which now makes Ibrahim roughly 83 years old. So he's over 80 years old. Ismail is still an infant. Ibrahim performs a circumcision on himself. You can imagine how difficult that must be, how difficult that would be for a Prophet of Allah, a very old person. But again, he leads by example. He leads an example for his son because he's the first person to ever perform circumcision. And no one should say that Ibrahim did it on his son because it was easy. Rather, Ibrahim first of all, acts upon it himself. This very difficult command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then brings, it, brings a command forward to his, um, to his son. Circumcision is from the commandments of the Prophet And it is also from the Sunnah, the famous hadith of the Prophet which can be found in Bukhari and also in Muslim. The Prophet said, there are five things that are from fitrah. Fitrah means sound nature. And in these five things, the Prophet said, circumcision. I know many of you are probably wondering right now, is that for boys or girls? I'll come to that in a moment. But for now, the hadith says, number one, al-khitan, which means circumcision. The second thing, shaving the hair under the navel. The third thing, cutting of the nails. The fourth thing, plucking the, the, the armpit hairs. And the fifth thing, trimming of the mustache. Now when you look at all five things that are mentioned in this particular hadith, what you learn is that where the Prophet ﷺ is saying that these five things are from nature, what's common in these five things? They are all asp aspects of purification, physical purity, how to keep oneself. If a person doesn't cut their nails, is that clean or dirty? It's not clean, it's really dirty, it's messy. If a person doesn't cut their mustache and it just grows and grows and grows, and every time you drink a milkshake it has to first filter through your mustache, that's not clean, it's very dirty. If a person doesn't um, clean under their arms or under their navel, these are all not clean things. And similarly, some people may ask, why does the, why does the deen give the command of circumcision? This is a big debate. That is this oppression? Is this, is this a mercy? What's the ruling on this? So, the, the, whenever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to, to do something, First and foremost, we have to remember that there's always a wisdom behind it. Whether we understand it or not, there's a lot of, a lot of benefit in circumcision, but I'm, before we even go into some of the benefits, I want to make it very clear. Once the command comes from the Prophet and it's a clear command, once the command comes to Ibrahim and Ismail and they're prophets of Allah, is there a possibility that that thing could be harmful? Yes or no? Is there a possibility that that is oppression? For those who are Muslims and believers, from our standpoint, that's not possible. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-adl, He is just, meaning He can never oppress. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-hakim, each command of it is calculated very carefully. It's, a, it's full of wisdom. Now there are many physical benefits of, of circumcision. It also prevents illness. This area can become the site of painful infections from bacterial growth. So. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the command. And as Muslims we know that purity is at the core of our existence. In Allah Allah loves those who excessively clean themselves. iman. One narration, iman. That purity is a part of your faith, or purity is half of your faith. So keeping ourselves clean is really important in all aspects. For, for parents to change the garments of their children regularly is Islamic. You know, because you're, 
you're, you're teaching your children purity. Teaching your children from a young age how to clean themselves is Islamic. Taking time out to clean your toilet and cleaning your washroom area, that is Islamic. Changing your linen regularly, Islamic. Changing your undergarments regularly, that's also Islamic. Washing your clothes properly, this is all Islamic. That's why right from the birth of a child, we teach the child the lesson of purity through the lesson of circumcision. Now the question is, what is the ruling for circumcision? What's the legal ruling of circumcision? I will cover the um, ruling for circumcision um, in two phases. First of all, I'm going to cover it for men only, and then after that we'll go over to the ruling of women. Actually, you know what, let's just cover them together. Let's cover them both together, the ruling of men and women. I'll break it down according to the four schools of thoughts. The first school of thought is the Hanafi school of thought. The Hanafi scholars say that circumcision for men is sunnah. Not mandatory, what do they say? Sunnah. And they say the female circumcision is permissible within itself, but is not considered to be a sunnah. They say the female circumcision is not from the sunnah, however it's something that's permitted. If someone wishes to do it because it's a cultural practice, there's permission to do so. Otherwise, it's not something necessary, neither is it something that's an emphasized practice or teaching of the Prophet ﷺ. You can find more detail on this in Fatawa Rahimiyah, written by Mufti Abdul Rahim Lajpuri, rahmatullahi a famous scholar from the subcontinent. He writes on this in detail, and he quotes the hadith of Bayhaqi and the Musnad of the, in the and from the Musnad of Imam Ahmad rahmatullahi alayhi, the Prophet ﷺ said, circumcision is sunnah for the men and an honor for women. So he doesn't say sunnah for both. In one side he says sunnah for men, and the other side he says honor for women. Now why is it an honor for women? The reason why the scholars say is because the Arab women at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, it was customary amongst them to be circumcised. There was a female companion by the name of Umm Atiyah she was a renowned nurse in Medina Munawwara. And she would treat the ill, she would wash and shroud the body of the deceased. She would also um, tend to those who were wounded, those who were sick and had some injuries, she would look after them. And she was also the lady who would perform the circumcision. The second opinion belongs to the Maliki school of thought. The Maliki scholars also say that it is sunnah to perform the circumcision for men. It is sunnah to perform the circumcision for, for men. When it comes to women, they say it is a preferred act, mandub. So they're not saying it's sunnah as well, they're saying it's something preferred. They use the word mandub. And the reason why they call it preferred and mandub is because of the narration of Umm Atiyah radiallahu anha that she did it. The Prophet ﷺ did not prohibit from it. Therefore, they say that there is a preferred aspect, a preferred nature to it. The third opinion belongs to the Shafi'i school of thought. Now, you have to remember, the traditional Shafi'i position is that circumcision for men and women is obligatory. What's the Shafi'i position? The traditional Shafi'i position is, which is the more common known, or you may find it referenced in more, many books, is that it is mandatory to be circum, to, circumcision is mandatory, obligatory upon both men and women. However, some Shafi'i scholars, they also say that it is mandatory for men, but they bring the ruling down for women from mandatory to sunnah. And you can find more detail on this in the Al-Majmu'ah. And the fourth uh, opinion on this issue belongs to the Hanbali school of thought, where they say that um, circumcision is obligatory for men, 
and merely an honorable thing for women. So not something, again, mandatory for women. They're, showing, they're also saying that it's something that's uh, of choice of them. It is not obligatory. Uh, Ibn Qudama al-Hanbali, he discusses this in detail and he says, this is the view of many people of knowledge. And Imam Ahmad rahmatullahi said that it is more uh, emphasized for men. So you notice from all of these opinions, all of these opinions that the, it seems that the more weight when it comes to the ruling of circumcision is given on the boys, the men. And it's not necessarily given on the women or the girls. Imam Shafi'i has a more stronger position on the issue. But even within the Shafi'i school of thought, there are those scholars who, give, um, who, who share another opinion. One thing to remember, that there is no recorded evidence. There is no recorded evidence of the Prophet Wasallam's daughters being circumcised. Okay? There is no recorded evidence of the daughters of the Prophet Wasallam being circumcised. Now the next issue that comes up with regards to um, circumcision is the story of Ibrahim Now at what age is Ibrahim performing the circumcision? He's over what age? 19. He's over 80 years old, right? If you take it, he did it at the time of his child's birth, if you take that opinion, he's over 80 years old. So what's the ruling of performing circumcision on someone who is past the age of puberty, someone who's older and did not have the circumcision done at their birth? You guys understand the question? If someone for some reason was not circumcised at birth, later on in their life they learn of the hadith, or maybe even they convert to Islam. And now, should they be circumcised? What's the ruling on this? So the Hanafi scholars, they break the ruling down to three, three different stages. The first thing they say is that if the person, if the male is able to tolerate the circumcision in terms of its pain and difficulty, and can also perform, perform the action himself, then that should be done. What's the first thing? What are the two things? If it can be tolerated and will perform the action by himself, then they say that this is something that should be done. As we see in the story of who? Ibrahim salam. He was able to tolerate it and also he performed it himself. Therefore, it is permitted. The second, the second scenario is where the person is able to bear the pain, however, is not able to perform it themselves, they will need someone else to do it. So now the scholars differ in opinion, even the Hanafi school of thought. Some scholars say that it will not be done. The reason is because you are exposing your private area to someone. And that's why they say that it will not be done. You will, you will be excused of the ruling. And the other scholars, they say that it will be done because even though you are exposing your private area, first of all, it's for a medical purpose. And secondly, because there is actually a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ said, whoever accepts Islam should have his circumcision performed. Right? So that's also the second, the, third, the, second, the second opinion. The third opinion is that a person after accepting Islam feels that that's not something they can go through with. You know, I just can't go through with it. It's too much for me, I'm not sure if I'll be able to bear it. So in this scenario, the scholars, they say that it can be and it should be avoided. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an, لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا if a person is not able to do something, there's no point imposing it on yourself and putting yourself to such difficulty. Imam al-Haskafi writes in Durul Mukhtar that if an old person entered Islam and medical experts were of the view that he won't be able to bear circumcision, then it should not be carried out. Similarly, the opinion of Alama Kashmiri, Alama Anwar Shah Kashmiri, famous scholar from the subcontinent, he, he says that, uh, that I do not recommend circumcision for those who have reached puberty as it is very painful and could also lead to death. Similar is the opinion of um, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. Now Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani's opinion, the reason why it's so important is because he's from the Shafi'i school of thought, and according to the Shafi'is, what's the ruling on circumcision? 
It's obligatory, it's mandatory. According to the Hanafis, it's a sunnah issue. So overgoing it, it's not something that you're, that you're punished for. But according to the Shafi'is, it's an obligatory issue. So Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, he writes in Futhul Bari, that if a child reaches puberty and he is weak to the extent that if circumcision was carried out to him, he will perish, then the necessity of circumcision will no longer remain. Okay, so that's why also that ruling is settled there. Now, after the circumcision is performed, Ibrahim salam, as I shared the part of the story earlier on, I'm going to continue on from there. He then brings his wife Hajar and his son Ismail. He takes them on the journey and brings them to Makkah Mukarramah. He brings them to a place where there is no soul there, no water there, not even a tree to take shade underneath. And they're in the middle of this desert, ocean of sand. After dropping them off there, Ibrahim salam turns around and begins to walk away. And this is the hadith of Bukhari, by the way, okay? He begins to, um, he begins to walk away. Now, before I move forward, I want to mention one thing. I shared with you that the scholars differ in an opinion on what age Ismail salam was brought to Mecca. Right? And I shared the first opinion that they say was when he was 13, 14 years old, and they quote the ayah of Surah Safat. And the second opinion is that she brought him, he brought her, the wife and the son when they were still nursing. And I quote, I said to you that the hadith is where? In Bukhari. That narration is in Bukhari. And the, the words of the hadith are, فَجَاءَ بِهَا إِبْرَاهِيمُ وَبِإِبْنِهَا إِسْمَعِيلُ وَهِيَ تُرْضِعُهُ that Ibrahim brought his wife Hajar and his son Ismail to Mecca, وَهِيَ تُرْضِعُهُ What does that mean? And at that time she was, she was nursing him. So that's where we learn the age of where Ismail is brought to Makkah Mukarramah. And he then brings them to the area where in the future they will build the Kaaba. Many years from now they're going to build the Kaaba there, but he brings them to that area. And he gives them, um, He leaves them both there. He then gives them a bag which has some dates in there, and he gives them a pot which has some water in there. Then after that, Ibrahim salam turns around and begins to walk away. So the hadith says that um, Hajar, the mother of Ibrahim salam, the mother of Ismail salam, she begins to run after Ibrahim salam, and she says, where are you going? And Ibrahim salam doesn't say a word. And she says to him again, where are you going? And you can just imagine the emotional state. Allah has just commanded him to leave them in the middle of the desert. How difficult that must have been. He's been waiting for his little baby for 83 years. And now he's leaving them in the middle of the desert. And it's so hot there. And he can see there's no water there. He can see there's no human there. He can see there's no other city, no other civilization there. To him, his children made us end up, they made us end up dying. And he begins to walk away. And as he's walking away, his wife Hajar is saying to him, where are you going? What's happening? What do you think you're doing right now? And he continues walking away and he doesn't say a single thing. Then after that, Hajar says to him, فَقَارَتْ لَهُ أَلَّهُ أَمَرَكَ بِهَذَا She asked him, did Allah command you to do this? And that's when Ibrahim finally spoke one word and he said, نَعَمْ Yes, Allah did tell me to do this. And Hajar says, فَقَالَتْ إِذَنْ لَا يُذَيِّعُونَ Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not waste us. Allah will take care of us. You can go. Ibrahim continues to walk off and again, you can just imagine how such an emotional moment for him. I find it difficult to leave my wife at the mall knowing that her phone is dead. Right? What's going to happen? What if they need something? And here he's leaving them without no one there. And um, there are many reasons why, but um, why it concerns me when her phone is dead. But nonetheless, Ibrahim salam, he leaves them there and he's walking off. 
And while he's walking off, again the hadith of Bukhari, it says that he walked until he passed a mountain, to a place where they could no longer see him. He just walked a little bit and crossed the mountain, and now no longer where his children, his child or his wife can see him. He then turned back towards them, and was facing where soon the direction of the Kaaba will be. He raised his hands and made a dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes reference to that dua in the Quran. رَبَّنَا إِنِّي أَسْكَنْتُ مِنْ ذُرِّيَّةِ بِوَادٍ غَيْرِ ذِي زَرْعٍ عِنْدَ بَيْتِكَ الْمُحَرَّمِ رَبَّنَا لِيُقِيمُ الصَّلَةِ فَجَعَلْ أَفْئِدَةً مِنَ النَّاسِ تَهْوِي إِلَيْهِمْ وَارْزُقْهُمْ مِنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَشْكُرُونَ Oh Allah, indeed I have left my family in a valley where there is no growth. Nothing is growing there. Buy your house. Even though there's nothing growing there, your house is there, Ya Allah. And someone who has brought to your house will not be left alone. And then after that he says, Oh Allah, the reason why I left them there, لِيُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ So they may establish salah. And a salah literally means dua, so that they may pray to you. Because right now they have no physical means of living. The only way they can live at this point is if they, what do they do? They make dua, they connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then he makes Two beautiful du'as. He says, فَجَعَلْ أَفْئِدَةً مِّنَ النَّاسِ تَهْوِي إِلَيْهِمْ Ya Allah, they're going to be very lonely here. Send some people to give them company. Oh Allah, bring hearts to them. Bring people to them. And then he says, وَرْزُقْهُمْ مِّنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ And give them some food, give them some fruits, give them some vegetation. لَعَلَّهُمْ يَشْكُرُونَ So they may be thankful. The mother, Hajar, began to take care of her child uh, and feed the child in the time that she was there because she had some dates and had some water. So she very carefully calculated how she would eat the dates and drink the water until the point came where the dates and water had now finished and she had nothing left. She waited, waited, waited. Her child began to cry. Her milk had dried. She no longer had any milk to even nurse the child with. She leaves her child near the Kaaba area, right? And she begins to run to see if there's something that, she, that can help them. Now she herself knows that there's nothing there to help them. Because she saw the area. She's been living here for a few days. She scouted out the area. But even then she knows that as a mother, if she just sits by her child's side while the child cries to death, that's not going to bring any comfort to her. She said, let me try one more time. It's kind of like that person who's looking for their wallet and has checked their pocket, pack, the, the pocket in, in their pants 10 times already. Maybe it's there. Maybe it's there. Maybe it's there. And she runs up the mountain. She runs up the mountain looking for water. And she can't find any water there. And she runs to the next mountain looking for water. Can't find any water there. And she runs between these mountains. What are the names of these mountains? Safa and Marwa. And she's making dua to Allah. She's making dua to Allah. You can't imagine the sincerity and the depth of her heart that she reached into on making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because right now, either it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helps them, or first her child will die, and then she's going to die. And for a mother, dying is easier than seeing your own child die first. And she's seeing her child in this pain. You know, when your baby's crying at home, um, because you haven't given them milk, or they need some food in the middle of the night, the husband and wife wake up and they say, go and look at the child. They can't sleep a night, they can't sleep a few minutes, or even a half an hour, without giving the child. And here the mother Hajar is there. Ibrahim salam has an idea of what's going on because this was going to happen this moment. She's running between the mountains and making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And here we learn a lesson. The lesson we learn is 
Never underestimate the dua of a mother. Especially when she makes that dua for her child. Because when a mother makes dua for her child, she makes dua for her child from a place of the heart that no other human being has access to. You and I, if we were to make... That same mother, if she was to make dua for someone else or something else, she wouldn't be able to go to that place of sincerity. That place of sincerity that the parents can make dua for their children is very unique. Sometimes a father will hold his child and embrace the child and kiss the child on the forehead. That kiss has such sincerity and such love that that child can't even imagine. And if you ask the father that can you please express your love, the father will say, I can't. The mother will say, I can't. And here the mother, she raises her hands and makes dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She's making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. An angel comes near the baby and takes the foot, the small, small little tiny foot, you know, those that you can't even buy shoes for, something really small, right? He takes a small little foot and taps the ground. And the unimaginable happens, a miracle occurs, the dua of the mother, right? The dua of the mother. From a barren land, water begins to come. Now you think about it, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to deliver water to them, were there other avenues available to, to deliver water? Yes or no? Allah could have sent an, uh, maybe like a camel, and the camel's hump was there, all they had to do was cut it and water was there, right? That was one possibility. Or maybe miraculously a cactus could have grown in front of them and water was there. Or maybe the clouds could have hovered over them and then rain would begin to follow, fall, water was there. But when a person makes dua to Allah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes through, He comes through in style. The water doesn't just come from places where human beings would expect it to come from. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends the water from where? وَمَن يَتَوَكَّلَ عَلَى اللَّهِ فَهُوَ حَسْبُ وَمَن يَتَّقِ اللَّهِ يَجْعَلْ لَهُ مَخْرَجًا وَيَرْزُقْهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا يَحْتَسِبُ Allah says that when a person fears Allah, is conscious of Allah, and when a person relies on Allah, Allah gives them from a place where they can't even imagine. And the water came from a place where they couldn't imagine. It came from the ground. And it started flowing. Hajar runs and picks up her baby and starts drinking herself. If she can drink, she can produce, and then she can give. So she starts drinking and drinking and drinking. And so much water comes out that she started saying, stop, stop. And the word she used to say stop was? Zam. She says zam. Zam means stop. She's saying stop, stop. That's why this water is called? Zamzam. Right? She's telling the water to stop. Ibn Abbas says that Yarhamallahu Umma Ismail. Allah's mercy be upon the mother of Ismail alayhi salam. zamzam. Only if she did not say zamzam, only if she let it flow, she says, he says, um, it would be a today it would be a ainan mu'inan. It would be like a flowing spring of water. He said we would see the water gushing out of the earth with our own eyes. It wouldn't just be a well. It would continue to flow. There would be like a river if you wish to say. A, a river flowing in Makkah Mukarramah had she not said zamzam. Now that the water is there, they have a source of, of, of water. This now opens up the door of existence. The Arabs would travel, those the Arabs that lived in that uh, in that area actually all lived in the southern part of, our, of the peninsula in Yemen. And they would travel up north for business to Sham in Syria. Now while they were traveling up north, during one of their trips they saw that there were some birds. So they saw the birds flying in the air and they said that if birds are here, that means that there's water here somewhere. So they sent one of their uh, men to go and scout the area. 
That person scouted the area until he found the water of Zamzam and he found this mother and her young child there now. So he brings the people and they come in and they ask that if they can stay there and drink some water and benefit, she gives permission. This area Mecca now becomes like a gas station, like a stopover, a rest area. So now when they travel back and forth, they come to there. Some of them said, can we come and live here? The mother of Ismail Hajar said, no problem, you can stay here. However, the condition is, you have zero ownership over the water of Zamzam. How much ownership do you have? Zero. No ownership over it at all. This water will be under our possession. Being under her possession does not mean that she is charging for it, because you don't charge for things that Allah gives naturally. Okay? You don't charge for air. You don't charge for water. These are things that are there, they're present. If a person purifies the water and wishes to charge for the effort they put into it, that's another thing. If a person bottles the water and then wishes to charge for that, that's another thing. But let's say for example, uh, you know, someone wants to come and drink from a river, you stand in front of them and say, you can't drink from this river. Why not? This is not happening. So you can't do that sort of thing. That's, that, that's, not actually, that's clearly prohibited and not permissible. Hajjid isn't stopping people from drinking. The reason why she's saying no ownership for you is because she's afraid that if they take ownership, they will then abuse the rights of the water. And she knows she will not abuse the rights of the water. The water of Zamzam is not only a water that nourishes the body, it also nourishes the soul too. There's a, there's a huge spiritual benefit in Zamzam. The Prophet ﷺ tells us, Al-ma'u Zamzam lima shuribalahu That the water of Zamzam, the water of Zamzam will serve the purpose that was made when a person drank it. You know the intent a person makes when a person drinks Zamzam, if they say, Ya Allah, I want this Zamzam to be a source for cure of my illness, and then they drink it, Allah will give you that. Right? If the person makes dua, Ya Allah, I want this Zamzam to be a nur for my face on the Day of Judgment, and you drink it, Allah will give you that. If a person drinks Zamzam and says, Ya Allah, as this water enters into my body, and as it travels through my body, I ask that you use it to remove this, the, the, the rust in my body, and, and enlighten my body with nur, Allah will give you that. That's the power of Zamzam. There was a lady who came to me, and her child was very sick, very, very sick. She said, Sheikh, what should I do? I said, look, continue getting medication, but if you could, book a trip to Makkah. She said, what, they have good medication there? I said, no. Actually, the hospitals there are horrible. The services are not too good either. Right? But what I will tell you is that they have zamzam there. Bathe your child in zamzam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give barakah. You can use water of zamzam for bathing and for doing wudu. However, the scholars have said the water of zamzam should not be used to remove impurity. If a person has blood on their body, they should not use the water of zamzam to remove that blood. Or if a person relieves themselves, they should not use the water of zamzam to remove that impurity from the body. They say you should not use zamzam to remove impurity from your body, otherwise a person can pour it over them, they can drink it, they can do wudu with it, these are all things that are permitted.